Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. Uh, D&D began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. And I think that's something our team takes really seriously, is that everyone is here because they care, and we actually believe in the idea that we, as a whole community, asked people to serve on our behalf, and we, as a whole community, need to welcome people home and make sure that they're set up to thrive, not just veterans helping veterans, even though that's key. We actually think it's it's on all of us. Welcome everyone to the Scuttlebutt. My name is Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you've been listening to the Scuttlebutt for some time, welcome back and thank you for your support. And if you're a new listener, you can always check out all of our old episodes on YouTube or you can download them wherever you get your podcasts. But, but be sure, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes on Monday. You can also reach out to me with any thoughts, comments, questions, uh, ideas for upcoming you know, episodes, or if you have a story to tell that you'd like to tell on the podcast, love to hear from you. So you can reach out to me through my email at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. We have a very interesting episode lined up for you today. Joining me on the podcast will be Leah Blaine. She's a PhD, clinic director, and licensed clinical psychologist with the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania. And joining her will be the outreach manager, Pete Whitney, who is a U.S. Army major, retired. Um, both of them uh, a part of this clinic. We're going to be talking with them both uh, about what they do, a part of the clinic, uh, who the clinic serves, um, the services that they provide, how people can get in touch with them, and also a bit about um, Pete's uh, service. I'd like to hear more uh, from our veterans about you know where they served, how they served. He had 30 years of service. Very interested and excited to have both of them uh, on for the podcast today. And uh, thank you always to our sponsors, DND Auto Salvage and Adagio Tobacco Free Health. Thank you both for your support of the podcast. And uh, without further ado, 
Enjoy the show. So my name is Liam Lane. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I serve as the clinic director for the Cohen Clinic at Penn, um, where I provide some um, clinical services. I do a lot of supervision um, and really try to make sure that the shop is running internally and that we're really um, out and about and that our partners and folks know about us and can find their way in if they need something. Great. Thank you, Leah. And Peter, welcome to the Scuttlebutt as well. Uh, can you uh, give us a bit of your background? Well, thanks, and thanks for having us. Um, so I started working at the Cohen Clinic back in August. Um, and prior to that, I had just retired uh, in July from the Army. Um, I did a total of 30 years of service, uh, 24 active, six reserve, and um, actually five years in the Navy active duty as well. Um, so I know what scuttlebutt means. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but... You know, uh, I started working in there in August, and my position basically is responsible for making sure that our name is out there for any veteran, family, organization that could potentially use the assistance in mental health care, um, most specifically for post-9-11 veterans. That's, mm -hmm. that's our target group, um, because there's a lot of reasons, but I would say one of the most important reasons is the generational gap that you have um and just and i'm, I'm a pre-9-11 vet too mm -hmm. um so i mean we it, but but when you start getting into vietnam vets it's not not that we don't see them or anything like that it's just mm -hmm. they're not as much as a focus that we're kind of out there hunting them down to make sure that hey do you know about us because there's, there's still a disconnect the, the vietnam vets they're great they have great organizations they kind of mm -hmm. they're able to they, they know what they're doing at this point they really yeah. do. Now, we've seen them. Dr. Blaine has helped many, many of them. Our, our clinic has helped many of them. But like I said, we're, we're really in the game right now um, to, to help those post-9-11 vets and their families. And, and the families is really one of the key parts to our clinic is um, we don't just see um, post-9-11 vets. We'll see their, their families as well. Mm -hmm. So it could be, you know, you know my, my son or my sons or my daughter or my wife, if they were they were struggling with anything like school or something like that, and they were having hmm. something that you know depression related or or you know anxiety or something they were just struggling with, and and I felt that like it's a nice place to go to a connection because you you do have that kind of family mentality in the military, hmm. and there's a comfort zone. It's not just for vets. It's also which is that's all we treat. Post nine, well, mostly post 9-11 vets and, and their families. So if you see something over and over again, it's kind of like a, a Chevy mechanic. I mean, if you have a Chevy, you're going you're gonna to want to bring it to a Chevy, a Chevy dealership if you can afford it. Right. And, I mean, because that's, that's their expertise. And that's, that's kind of the way we work. Um, I'm going to stop before I keep going. That's fine. I, that's why we have a podcast. You could talk as much as you like, but they're, they're, oh boy, I have a lot of questions now just based off of uh, a lot of things you were talking about. But um, before we go on, I want to get a, a little bit more of a clear idea of of some uh, of your service. Um, you know, you you joined pre 9-11. Um, I'm guessing you, you enlisted in the army first before you went Navy later. Is that true? No. You no, went Navy first. Yeah. 1989, I, I signed up for the Navy mm -hmm. and um did five years active duty with them um, on very old aircraft carriers, um, which have since been decommissioned and cut up into razor blades or whatever. Um, had a great time. Um, 
got out, went to, uh, went to school. And um, I was an air traffic controller and I just didn't really see the, the great place to do, you know, two weeks a year, one weekend a month. It just didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I signed up for the, uh, for the army. Actually, first thing I did in the army was I was a medic. Um, and uh, did that for, for, for a little while. And the great thing, you know, started off in the army reserve actually um, while I was going to college and ended up becoming a civil affairs sergeant. Um, and then I went back to active duty as a, as an engineer officer. Um, so, uh, I don't want to take too much. Different. That's a lot of different MOS. <laughs> yeah. I, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not done, um, <laughs> but, 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 but I'm going to stop there. There's not much that I haven't done. Um, like I said, I, I've been afforded such great opportunities and it's really just being available and whatever it came up that the, that the military needed. I mean, other than switching from the Navy to the army, but once I was in, I was, you know, I was open up to new ideas and, you know, becoming an officer and, uh, and I felt there was a chance to grow and, you know, and, and lead troops and, um, you know, like, like the rest of us, I mean, we all got our chance to go down range and, um, you know, it's, it, it was a great experience. Um, and, uh, I, I gotta, I gotta admit, I, I don't miss it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, one of the great experiences, but you know, it, it's one of those things like, I did it. It's done. Um, and I'll, I'm in a really good place um, with that. Um, one question I like to ask, and this is before we get into the ideas of the clinic and everything behind its mission and, and the treatments you guys offer. Uh, but one question I like to ask of, of veterans, especially who have served over that long a period of time and given the last like 30 years, I'd say, of conflict is how did you see the service change from when you went in, which is really Desert Storm through 9-11? even up to your retirement. Uh, what, that's a big question, I understand, but you know, this idea of like, there was a lot that was happening that you were involved in and what did you see sort of across that spectrum? Um, well, because my service was always changing, it's a little bit harder for me to answer that question because hmm. um, the one thing that was constant was my change. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I do want to quick just remark on, on two different directions for that. For that. Um, good example, um, and I'm not endorsing or not endorsing a policy, uh, in uh, whatever it was, 94, you know, I was a, living on an aircraft carrier, was 20 something years old. Um, and I remember when don't ask, don't tell was instituted and I'm like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care either way. I just, whatever they tell me to do on that, you know, that's, that's the best way to, to look at it. If you're, yeah. if you're going to be a careerist you know, or not, or just be in for a few years. Just, like you do what they tell you to do, you know, have faith in your leaders, unless you're doing something illegal and, uh, and move forward. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward um, 20 something years later or whatever it was, um, maybe a little bit less. I was at the maneuver course um, down in Fort Benning, mm -hmm. uh, maneuver captain's career course. And, um, and they were doing away with don't ask, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Now, the same soldiers, same group of people that didn't want this instituted were like, oh my God, they're going to get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I'm like, wow, I remember back when, um, you know, it was, you know, people were freaking out about them bringing it in the first yeah, place. Yeah, right. So the point that I'm, I'm sorry, I'm beating around the bush here, but hmm. the point is that 
just you just got to stay steady. And that's what I told the you know the younger you know they're all infantry or armor officers. And uh, I said I said you know what I said I said if you're going to be in this game, you, you just got to settle down because the the machine's going to keep going. Mm-hmm. But you know you you're gonna you're gonna be your part in the machine and do your your best to make your your part work well. Mm-hmm. But um, you know it's it's it, yeah it's it's been a long time and I, I and that's just one great you know, change that I, that I saw, but at the same time, if you're, if you're part of, if you understand you're part of the machine, it doesn't, it doesn't really change. I mean, Interesting. you know, you could, you could say, you could say that like the idea that, you know, we used to polish our boots and now we don't polish our boots, mm-hmm. you know, vacuum. I mean, that, that's, that was like probably something that affected people more than anything. It's like, you know, you don't polish boots anymore. That's, hey, that saves a lot of time. You know, little things like, <laughs> There, the, or the idea that um, contracting, like um, so much more is contracted now compared to the early 90s. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was already growing back then. I think it was uh, um, Secretary Perry that really moved forward with the, with, uh, the contracting uh, piece in the military. But um, now, I, now, th- now here is a, a big change. Is and and I'm gonna, I'm bringing it back to the clinic. I'm not going to be a, a bad outreach manager. Um, <laughs> the difference in care for veterans overall is night and day. Mm-hmm. And the Cohen Clinic is a great example of that mm-hmm. because, like, when I, when I got out, um, in whatever it was, late '95, um, and I was Joe civilian and um, you know, for the few months before I joined the, the reserves, I had no clue what I was doing, no clue where I was going. I, I probably was drinking too much. Um, I was definitely drinking too much. Um, but I, I, you really lose that direction because, like, for the first five, six years of your adult life, and this is this is the way most people join the military. Is it you? You, you have a family. You have everything. It's like kind of it's this this beautiful, beautiful structure. And I wish that so many more, you know, young men and women would get to experience it because it's like, it is amazing. You go from like, not really like, you know, oh, I'm going to go hang out with blah, blah, blah after school. Like you have, you have a job right away. You have your responsibilities, um, you know, to, you know, kind of paraphrase one of, one of my former commanders. He goes, what other, um, what other job in the world at 22 years old could you be, um, fresh out of college and be a jump master. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. who the heck, or, or for me, you know, at, you know, at the time, an 18 or 19 year old kid, an aircraft, uh, on an aircraft carrier, I was an air operations supervisor. <laughs> I mean, it, the intensity of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you lose it and you lose a lot of that camaraderie and you go mm-hmm. back, the world kept moving. And I'm, I came back all my friends were graduated college or settled into jobs. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the biggest difference. Cause it, it, and it's not that, you know, nobody cared really. It's just that it's, it just, there wasn't a focus on us. And unfortunately it took a lot of people dying and it took a lot of people, you know, getting injured and a lot of people just, I mean, and there, there's a lot else that goes into it, um, which probably we could, you know, have a whole other program on, but I would say that 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 the the healthcare, the the, the post um, service 
um, all that stuff. It's just, it's just so much better. Um, yeah. And the Cohen Clinic is a great example. I mean, could, you know, if if you weren't, you know, really around in 95 and you understood what was going on, it, it, it wasn't a second book or 96 or whatever, or, or you know, post-Gulf War. And I, right. I, know, I know it was a different situation. So sometimes with bad things, good things come. I mean, the GI Bill is um, is incredible. Right. Um, that's that's a game changer. Because now it's like, well, how am I going to, what job am I going to have to support myself while I'm going to college? I mean, I think I think I paid $1,200 for my GI Bill and I got $10,000 back in increments of $200 a month. That's, mm -hmm. That doesn't pay for school even in 1996. <laughs> um, now, I mean, I barely plays for a candy bar now. So, <laughs> but but they they're, they're, that is one of the great um, and it's undervalued, underestimated um, mm -hmm. uh, changes. So, I, and and I, I you know I, I want Dr. Blaine to stop me in a minute here um, because she usually saves me. Um, <laughs> so so so. Well, I think the, um, it's a great setup. It's a great setup towards what what the clinic is, and and gives us a a good end to that to this change. Well, well, I would I would say even with that, you know, the, the idea of the GI Bill because everybody doesn't use it or whatever happens. It's it's not a, it, money is not an answer to everything. Mm -hmm. It helps, um, but financial security is 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 um it's 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 a it's a big deal when you mm -hmm. when you have that going. As a as a service member, especially as a, as a young man and woman, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that that's you know that's that's I'm sure Dr. Blank could, could talk that's about how financial security is, is an issue for people. Yeah, and I think you know, Pete, the, all the things that you really kind of laid out about you know the the amazing parts of service, which I think you know, uh, as a culture, we it's it's it comes from a good place, but as a culture, we focused a lot on injuries and illness and and what happens and and um you know the struggles and and those are it's it's i think it is helpful to be realistic about what you know what service looks like what transition out of service looks like um but a lot of what we work with people on isn't the presence of a negative it's the absence of those positives right you are in a space where you have a community a camaraderie literally someone has your six at all moments yeah. You are, you know, in a space where you have purpose, where you have structure, right? You have all of these, these strengths and amazing, you know, pieces of, of that people value so much about their service. And often when we're working with folks who are transitioning, it's, it's, you know, oftentimes it's PTSD or depression or, you know, drinking or whatever the case might be, not sleeping right, fine. I mean, we can help with all of that. Um, but often it's, I, you know, I got out in the last year or the last five years and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I have a lot more time with my family, but I don't have any hobbies and I'm just working all the time. And then we go into like a telework environment and it's like all shoulds all the time. There's, yep. you know, there's not this purpose. There's not this balance and this connectedness to community. So I think it really is about, you know, there's a way in which we can kind of honor the best parts of service in transition by trying to really support folks to um, create those pieces in the civilian world, right? So, you know, is there volunteerism? Is there, you know, working for a nonprofit with a mission that you really care about, even though, you know, you could go and do whatever you want, right? So it's how do you build that? How do you stay connected with a network or recreate a network? Um, and I think one of the pieces that that I certainly love about our model, you know, that Pete and I talk about a lot is that our goal is to stay kind of time limited, right? And so that's not like 
session counts. That's not, you know, it's not about, you know, stopping access. It's about really pushing ourselves to make sure that we're setting goals with our clients, that we have a strategy that's collaborative to get to those goals, and that then we get there. Um, because, you know, I think especially when we do talk about some of those, those, you know, really heavy topics like PTSD or, you know, depression, some, you know, trauma, grief, what have you, um, you know, if, if you have forever, it can take forever. And if you don't, it often won't. So I, I think that there really is, um, there's a lot of our model that really tries to honor, you know, I think the strengths and the culture of military service. And, and I will share, I myself did not serve. I'm a Korean War granddaughter and I grew up right near the joint bases. So I feel like I've, I've always had, um, you know, a piece of the military really in or near my life, but I had to learn a lot. And I think what I really love about the Colin Veterans Network and about our clinic is, you know, it, it actually is kind of relying on that framework of being stronger together, right? So like when I don't know, when I'm like, Pete, there's this wacky thing going on and we're trying to connect with, you know, a reserve unit and like, and I'm like, where is the chain of command here? And he's like, Duh. like, he's like, he did all of that, right? He was reserved. He like, he knows every piece of everything. So being able to say, Hey, what's the deal with this? And what are the concerns here? And if it's something that I don't know, despite having worked with veterans and military folks for like the last 10 years, you know, I can still, you know, connect with him and he can help me. Um, and I think that's something our team takes really seriously is that everyone is here because they care. And we actually believe in the idea that we, as a whole community, asked people to serve on our behalf. And we, as a whole community, need to welcome people home and make sure that they're set up to thrive. Not just veterans, helping veterans, even though that's key, we actually think it's, it's on all of us. That's a great point. Um, let's let's take a, a, a big 10,000 point view of all of this. And, and what is the, the Cohen's veteran network and how does that come down to your particular, uh, I'd say branch or, or um, uh, position at Penn? Yeah, you want, what do you think Pete, you want me to go? Yeah, cause I'll probably say it and get in trouble, so. <laughs> You'll get in trouble. Um, all right, so <laughs> like the nutshell 10,000 book you. So the Cohen Veterans Network um, is a philanthropically funded network of uh, behavioral health clinics that are launched across the country. So um, Stephen A. Cohen, uh, Mr. Cohen uh, and his family stood up. The first clinic was at NYU and um, Mr. Cohen and his family are really passionate about this. Mr. Cohen is actually a Marine dad. Um, and he's also somebody with the means and the assets to see a problem and, and try to put a solve in place. And so, you know, they stood the clinic up at NYU and, and the, the little joke, you know, that, that the board shares is like, yeah, they were all like, okay, great, we did it. And Mr. Cohen looks at me like, all right, how do we scale it? Um, and so really trying to figure out, you know, that's great and serving your local community is amazing, but this is a huge need everywhere. Um, so they have, you know, somebody who's specifically in charge of advanced scouting to find where the resorts deserts, where are the post-9-11 veterans, um, where are the families not being served. And so to date, there are 19 clinics stood up across the country. And the Cohen Veterans Network is kind of that central office that helps to support. So things like our electronic health record and training and all of these amazing assets that any one clinic on their own, it would be a massive lift to try to scale, but they can offer this really like gold standard, you know, level of resource and service, and then all the clinics everywhere get to be able to tap into that. Um, and so how that trickles down for us, we were the fifth clinic to launch. So we were kind of part of a pilot group that was really helping to figure out, you know, what's this going to look like? How are we going to make this work? 
um, you know, what's replicable and then what really needs to be tailored to the local market. Um, you know, our community really like we're in Philly, we are, you know, we have the joint bases nearish, right? Where it's drivable. Um, but we're really in a guard heavy state, right? And so for us, you know, whereas some of our sister clinics are like parked outside of, you know, active duty base gates, we're in a really different environment with a ton of veterans and military families and guard reservists. But what that looks like for us to be a resource to our community is just really different than theirs. Um, and so what that looks like on a clinic level is having this amazing resource and support, uh, you know, across the country by the network, and then here being able to tailor things. Um, so what every Cohen clinic does is offer behavioral health care. So that's therapy, medication management, case management. Um, that's for the whole family. So as Pete said, um, our focus is post 9-11 veterans and military families who can serve Guard and Reserve, um, which we know is a huge gap. Um, a lot of folks don't understand the, the limited resources for our reserve contingent. Um, and we can serve family members whether their veteran or service member is connected or not. And I think that's really key. Um, it's also regardless of role or uh, discharge status. So folks with bad papers, um, folks who didn't, you know, who maybe went to basic and got injured, but they don't have their service connected disability yet, we can, we can catch everybody. Um, which those are really great points. And that's something I sort of highlighted in, in sort of researching your website is um, not only the reservist and you know, that sort of component, but this idea of discharge status, regardless of that as well. And you know, you hear about some of the other organizations that do help veterans. Um, are there restrictions within their network that, you know, discharge status does mean something and they probably can't get get treatment at those facilities. Um, and what is it? What does it mean for the Cohen Clinic to be able to say, it's pretty much an open door policy. Yeah, I mean, Pete can speak to that because he's out there, you know, sharing the good word all the time. Yeah, it's it's um, it's up there in the top two or three things that attracted me. Um, not at first. At first, it was it was oh my gosh, we really see you know dishonorably discharged veterans. And then um, you know, I I've told this story a few times. I started thinking about different um people that I've served with. And some were just young kids um, that did their their duty, got caught on, you know, caught up with drugs be because of their deployments. And then they got dishonorably discharged. I'm like, wow, I'm like, if there's something we, we could have done for so-and-so or such and such, it, it would have been great. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they did the right thing um, in their, their soldier sphere, but you know what? Life's not perfect. And being in the service, especially in the last 20 years, has been far from perfect when you're deploying and you're coming home and you're, you're 19, 20 year old kid. And as um, we've talked on the podcast, deploying multiple times where, you know, Vietnam, go for a year, you're back. World War II, yeah, you're gone until the war's done. But here it's, we hear about, you know, multiple, multiple deployments, not just one, two, five. We're talking 15, 20. Yeah. And yeah, whenever anybody says 15 or 20, uh, it always gives me pause because okay. I'm like, well, how the heck did you do that? <laughs> do you have a time machine? But uh, no, I'm, I'm half joking, but, um, you know, a lot of, I would say there's, there's one person I have in mind that, that had just luck of the draw out of all the people I knew, two tough deployments, mm -hmm. two tough. All it took was one. It only takes one. Yeah. But he, he had two and he was young enough where his second deployment, he wasn't even 22 years old yet. And mm -hmm. he was already hooked on, on drugs, you know, opioids and whatnot. 
Um, and it was a bad, you know, a bad idea to go to Afghanistan. <laughs> right. You don't have a choice. Um, you know, so, so yeah, that's, that's really, you know, I would say just, just a huge, huge plus that initially I would think a lot of, especially lifers, you, you hear that, you're just like, oh, really? Like, and, and then, and you're like, oh, really? Yeah, good idea. Because, mm -hmm. because um, most of, not all, but most of our, our fellow um, vet, veterans care type of stuff, um, and the VA is not only, they, I mean, they, they have to have certain parameters because if they didn't have parameters, they're already overwhelmed. Yeah. So if, so they have to have the parameters that it has to be service connected. Mm -hmm. So that's the other part for us. It's not service connected because while you were serving, you know, we're, we're taking into account and we're assuming that something in your life during your service had an impact somewhere that, you know, could have caused or whatever. And we'd much rather err on the side of, um, of seeing one too many that, that actually made, you know, that, that took the oath and, and did what they had to do than seeing, you know, not enough. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's a great model. Um, and, and then you, you combine that with the families um, the, the idea that, that we do see families and, um, you know, it, it, it's, we fill so many gaps that just, they, and, and it's not, I don't, I don't ever want to sound like, you know, the people at the VA are amazing. Um, but you can't, uh, you, you can't see everybody. You can't see everybody for everything. So we're yeah. that organization that does. And and it's I interesting because there's so many, sorry, there's so many organizations that cover so many things. Yeah, you can't see everybody and everybody has something different, but it, it seems like in the last like 20 years, there's been a, a lot more organizations that are providing a lot of these types of treatments. And sorry, go ahead, Dr. Blaine. Yeah, I, I was just going to piggyback on, on Keith's point because I think the other piece that happens is there's, there's two, it's a two-pronged barrier, right? So on the one hand, it's do you qualify for those services based on your service, based on your connection? So you know, if you're guard, you can get TRICARE, but you know, the copay is this and it's that and that. And so can you really afford it? Especially if you're, you know, maybe experiencing some discrimination because of your service, because you have to throw a weekend a month. And as soon as any employer hears that, that's not right. So there's all of these kind of, you know, factors that really go into the mix in people's real lives. And then you also have just that the way that folks think about it, which is that if you don't you know, if you don't qualify for the VA, often people won't even identify themselves as a veteran, right? right? If somebody has bad papers or even other than honorable, right? People won't even identify as a veteran to be connected into veterans resources. And then you want to think about family members. If we don't even ask people if, right? So when you, you think about, you know, in your place of employment, in your healthcare setting, you're lucky if you get asked if you served or if you currently serve, you don't get asked if a family member did. Mm -hmm. And yet that is a huge part of family's culture, right? So if you have literally, you know, as we always say, right, served alongside, you want to be able to go to a place that understands what that looks like, that understands that you might have to PCS to Kentucky next week. And that actually is part of a network that has a clinic that can get you right there. And we actually, that happened this morning, right? So I think, you know, that, that aspect of like, it does end up being a really challenging barrier for folks to get access to a quality of care, right? You know, there are a lot of services out there um, that really focus on a military community and, and, and try to do a lot of good. 
Um, I think my two favorite pieces of the model are, you know, the, the fact that we are just dogged about trying to overcome barriers. Mm-hmm. And we really are focused on an access to a high quality of care, actually the most proven level of care that we can possibly offer. And, and I see that personally, I get a little soapboxy, um, but I see that as an ethical mandate, right? If I have two treatments and I know that one has been studied and has shown amazing results for the vast majority of people who've used it, and there's something else that could be good and it's being tested, well, come back to me when you actually have the data that says that it is actually good and I'm right there. I will integrate whatever has an evidence base, but I think that's a, perf- that's a, that's a specific framework that comes from having worked with so many trauma survivors over so many years who have come into my office and said, I was never even told I had PTSD, let alone that there were treatments for this. And I'm not going to fall down on somebody that way, right? I'm good. We're going to screen for it. We're going to let you know what it is. If you're ready to get going with the treatment, we're going to rock it out. If there's something else that's coming up and getting in the way first and you're not quite there yet, then we're going to, we're going to tackle that, but you're going to know, and we're going to make that decision together. So I'm glad you (laughs) No, that's great. And I love the passion because uh, you brought up uh, uh, evidence-based practice um, because I highlighted that on your website and wanted you to talk a bit more about what that is and and how have uh, those practices come to be and how they uh, what what they mean to you uh, being able to provide that. Oh, Pete. All right. Time me because, you know, know, (laughs) I get a little long winded on this one. Okay, so evidence based practice, um, I think first just starting with what that means is really huge because people throw that term around now that Mm -hmm. it's been kind of picked up in the common lingo. Um, So evidence-based practice, when we say it, what it means is that there are gold standard studies that have actually um, tested this, whatever the treatment is, against a reasonable comparison, right? So, you know, if we are looking at treatment as usual, like supportive therapy versus uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And we want to say, okay, how does one do against the other? And then what makes it kind of that tier one level of evidence is that that has happened at multiple places, multiple times, right? So it's not just, hey, the inventor of this study, you know, studied 10 people and they all did great. Well, versus who? And then what happens when we actually try to scale that and take that, not just the person who literally spent the last 10 years developing it, but let's get it out to the community and see what happens. And so we only use treatments that have had the opportunity to have in in many cases, actually decades of research at this point to show that versus no care versus treatment as usual versus other treatments, this is still what comes out in that horse race as the winner, right? And so we know that if your goal is to beat your depression, decrease your drinking, you know, really process and and work through that trauma, not that we can make it not have happened, but that we can carry it forward differently. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are the treatments we're using. It's the same for couples therapy. It's the same for therapy with kiddos. Um, And so a lot of those treatments, um, what there's, there's kind of a common um, framework or or theoretical uh, orientation that's been tested a lot and has just done really well um, in the trials over time. And that's called cognitive behavioral therapy which is kind of a big umbrella for a bunch of different kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can get into to that piece. But I, I think that, that starting from what does evidence-based mean, I think, you know, when I talk with people about like how to find therapy and like how to know what, like what actually works, ask somebody what they mean when they say that something is evidence-based because the evidence can't be like, I tried it five times and everybody told me they liked it, right? Like some people will say, yeah, there's evidence-based. Um, but it really does mean something in the literature, um, you know, to, to be able to say, hey, we, we have 
very, very firm confidence this is going to work for you because thousands of people have tried it and it's worked for them. Before we get into defining some of these treatments, um, what happens when someone comes in that doesn't know what their goal should be or even what the problem is? They seem very lost. Sure. Yeah. And so I, this is, I mean, he knows like one of my go-tos is like, come in if you don't feel like yourself. Come in if you can't mm. sleep right. Come in if you can't concentrate. You're fighting with your partner. You're freaking out of people when you're driving, right? Like come in if, if something feels off and, and it's our job to help you sort that through and figure out, you know, okay, what are the goals, right? Because we are, we're going to look at the challenges that somebody's facing, but we're always moving towards a goal, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't get along with my partner. Okay. Well, I'm really glad that we're talking about that. So we got to figure out, you know, is that something we need to have conversation with them in the room? Is that something that, you know, we, you know, is there anger coming up in other ways? And so what we do is when somebody's coming in, all they have to know is something doesn't feel right. I need some help, right? Mm -hmm. So call in. That's what it is. Great. We're going to go through, we're going to walk through some common challenges, right? So are you having trouble sleeping? Are you feeling down? Have you not been feeling like yourself? Um, we're always going to screen to see if there have been traumatic or stressful experiences in the past, because it turns out that anger and irritability is a symptom of PTSD. It's a symptom of depression, right? So if what we actually uncover is, hey, you know, you went through some stuff as a kid and then you deployed three times and on the last one, something real bad happened and you haven't been the same since, and you kind of can't stop thinking about it, and you're doing the perimeter in the evening, right, and you're snapping off at everybody, well, yeah, that's why you're not getting along with your partner, but bringing, you know, them in the room isn't going to help. What we need to do is tackle that PTSD first, right. right, and if at that point, right, as long as we're on the same page, and, and you know, we, we always, we make that treatment plan collaboratively, so if we say, mm -hmm. What we're seeing is PTSD, right? Here's what we would recommend. Here's what the evidence would support. And if they say, hey, you know, like I just, I'm about to change a job. We're expecting our first kid. To me, I'm saying like, that makes it the perfect time, right? Because you're going to start that in the best place you can. But if somebody says, I really can't do that right now. Okay, we can do other things. But more likely than not, you're going to have to do that work. Find some way to process that before you're actually going to be able to get back to that place that you want to be in. For some people, that's running a marathon. For some people, that right, it doesn't always have to be therapy. Um, but in terms of the, the kind of bag of tricks that we have, right, those tools that we know, mm -hmm. that's where we're going to have to go. Um, and so we, we figure that out. We sort that out together. And then if that same person comes in, if we do both decide, hey, yep, we do think it's PTSD after we've talked about it some we kind of agree, we see where this fits, we have this game plan, we really tackle it. If they're still not getting along with their partner, then they can come in for couples therapy, right? And that's the beauty, that's the beauty of this flexible model is, you know, we're, we're gonna do the right thing and we're gonna make sure that we see somebody through. Um, and if, if at the end of the day, you know, they try, they try a treatment with us and then they, you know, they say like, hey, yeah, this has worked and that's worked, but now I really still need to work on, I don't know, you know, um, um, struggling to pay attention or this and that, or something that we feel like is going to go on for a long time, we can connect out to other resources. If they feel like it's going to be something that they want support over the next couple of years, you know, we can help folks get there too. So uh, talk to me a bit about the, the, these three different treatments. I, I'm looking at your bio, there's cognitive processing therapy, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's prolonged exposure therapy. Um, these are ones, uh, Dr. Blaine, that you work with, uh, can you tell me a bit about the differences between them, which, sure. what these therapies help with, and how you choose which one? Yeah, so um, great, great questions. And so these are all, and, and we use um, any number of treatments here um, in the clinic, um, many of which are framed, as I had mentioned before, from this cognitive behavioral therapy model, right? So the idea is 
that um, our emotions and our behaviors are kind of the guiding light, right? Like, so if I'm irritable and not getting along with people, if I'm feeling down all the time, that's showing me what's hurting, right? Just like if my leg hurt, like I would probably need to figure out, like maybe I need a knee replacement, right? Um, but if, you know, where we can have these points to intervene is, you know, we know that what we, how we think about something impacts how we feel and what we end up doing, right? Um, and, and what we do actually also impacts how we think and how we end up feeling, right? So what cognitive behavioral therapy does is to take those two kind of points of intervention to be able to act on whatever problem is coming up. So, you know, if somebody has, um, let's, we'll go with something kind of like, you know, a, a little disconnected, right? Like if somebody has um, a fear of riding in elevators, but they got an opportunity to interview a Comcast, right? And so they need to get up the damn elevator because it's like, you know, 50 floors. So what we could do is really start to take apart and look at, okay, hey, where did this fear come from, right? Like what, what's the thought process behind this? How are we going to be able to kind of dismantle some of that thinking, figure out, hey, what of it is, is, is fine? Like, what of it is accurate? Are there sometimes problems? Sure. How likely is that though, right? And, and is, that, is that something that you want to keep to the extent that you're willing to say no to this opportunity, right? So that's the cognitive side, right? And that's obviously a lighter example. Often what we're talking about is, um, is really heavy um, and takes some time to sift through. Uh, the behavioral piece is, hey, if we if our goal is to get the, to the 50th floor in an elevator that might be crowded, we got to start a lot lower than that, right? Like we might need to just get on one elevator solo, go a floor and do that 10 times, right? We might not need to just like stand in a confined space first, right? Like we got to break it down to make sure that you can actually tackle that goal at the end, but we're going to help you kind of train the behaviors to get there and work through that fear. Because when you're doing that, you're also telling yourself it's safe and I can do it, right? Mm -hmm. the, the proof is in the pudding. Um, so that's a really like in a nutshell version of like what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Um, if you think about cognitive processing therapy, it's a really trauma focused CBT, right? So you're, you're taking a look at what was the impact of that event or those events? Because usually somebody is not coming based on one traumatic experience. It can be, but it's just not it's not the norm for, for who we end up seeing. Um, and so really kind of slowing down, taking that apart and thinking about, this was a massive thing that happened. It had really huge impact in your life. And so mm -hmm. how have you been making sense of that? And, you know, how has that impacted? How do you think about yourself, right? Is there something mm -hmm. wrong with me? Did I do something wrong? Am I that person? How does it impact how you think about other people, right? Like, are they safe, right? Can you actually trust people or is that not such a good move? Um, and what can you expect from the world around you, right? Like this idea yeah. that, you know, if, if I think that I have to be on guard all the time or something dangerous will happen, I'm going to be exhausted, right? And maybe that made a ton of sense when I was deployed and maybe it makes less sense when I'm like living in a suburb somewhere. Um, but, but we've got to be really realistic about that. And I think that's what we share with clients is like, we're not going to tell you, here's what you think. We're going to help slow down, look at how different traumatic events may have impacted how you're seeing things right now. And we're going to, kind of develop some tools to sort through it together so you can pick mm -hmm. what makes sense for you in your life, right? I have clients that, you know, live in areas that they don't feel safe in for various right. reasons. And so, you know, the idea of like, oh, I'm home, so I'm safe, like, not necessarily. So, okay, so so then how is how are we still adapting to the environment? Am I safe when I'm at school? Am I safe when I'm at work? Am I safe when I'm in my apartment unlocked? You know, those, those kinds of pieces. So that's that cognitive processing therapy, really taking a look at 
how, what happened, how can we make sense of that trauma um, itself? And then how do we make sense of the impact on how we see the world going forward? Um, whereas the prolonged exposure therapy and, and other exposure therapies is really more that tried and true. Um, I mean, exposure is in the name for a reason. Um, we're exposing ourselves to the feared situation. So that involves talking through the trauma memory, which often is very strongly avoided. Um, understandably, it brings up a lot of painful emotions and distress. Um, and then also going through uh, and approaching situations that have been avoided. Um, so if, um, you know, if somebody was, um, you know, if there was an IED blast, right? And so folks might avoid roads with potholes, bumpy roads, you know, having to drive slowly, right? Driving in certain situations, right? We're going to break all of those down mm -hmm. and start and build kind of a, we call it a hierarchy, right? So we, we start at the bottom rung of the ladder and we climb up, right? So we kind of, we go towards what's the goal. The goal is you want to be able to, you know, go to your kids, you know, game or be in a stadium or what, like, cool. How do we get there? We might have to just drive over a pothole a hundred times, right? And, and it's worth it because it means that you get your life back and you get your bandwidth back. And when you're in those situations, you're actually in them. Like you are all the way fully present. And yeah. I think that's when we know that something's worked. Like we measure things and we keep an eye on symptoms. But the way that we know that something has worked is like our clients look more relaxed and they're telling us about like, the ways they were connected to their family or something they did that they wouldn't have been able to do a couple months ago. Um, the good success stories, like the, those are the ones that you're hoping you always are leading. Yeah, yeah and those are, the, those are like those victory moments and of course totally de-identified, but we share those as a team, right? That's what we like, well, you know, we'll in a team meeting, we'll share and we'll be like, hey, so-and-so had this happen or that happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, so-and-so like, you know, my client had whatever. Um, and I think though, you know, being able to really um, support each other in the work because it's really heavy. It's yeah. a lot of, it's a, it's a big lift, but I think um, we all know that we're in it for the right reasons, right? We're, we're helping folks to work through something towards that light at the end of the tunnel. And we know that it's there. Before we get into, and I know we have a little bit of time left here, uh, before we get into how people can sign up at the, at the Cohen Clinic, what they need to do or what they need to have uh, when they walk in the door, uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, maybe a couple personal questions just to kind of figure out a little bit more of uh, like the humans behind the Cohen Clinic, both of you, Peter. Uh, I'd like to start with you if it's all right. If I ask, when you transitioned out, uh, did you have to seek some level of, of uh, practice or therapy? And was there something that helped you in that transition? Or if not, did you just uh, kind of come back into the civilian world and, you know, hit the ground running? Um. You know, I, I think I was just fortunate to have the people around me that I did, um, my family and, um, you know, some of my friends and I kept in touch with my, my comrade, comrades and stuff like that. I mean, so, and, it, and it's just different for everybody. It's, you know, you, you said some people have X amount of deployments or whatever. It's just, um, you know, I, that, and that's something that I would recommend that anybody Who's, who's out there and struggling? Mm -hmm. Number one, you know, if, if you really think you're you need us, we're here. We call the clinic. We'll make sure you give that number, you know, by the end of the, the interview here. Um, but number two, you know, being able to reach out and then talk to people is so helpful. But everybody doesn't have it. Um, there was a you felt like there was a lot of tools in your tool belt that you could call upon in there, your transition. There was support that you know if if I needed it and people mm -hmm. that I had deployed with. Um, you know, I was lucky enough at my retirement party where, um, you know, well, a few years ago, my, during my last promotion to major, um, I actually had um, a 
formerly another, you know, fellow sailor, young man, um, who had been a lieutenant commander in the in the Navy, and he came and he promoted. He did my promotion um, at an army promotion. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so yeah, I had a really deep well to draw from. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I always kept uh, in great contact with my comrades, be it the, the, the Navy or the Army. Um, and it, I, yeah, I, I, a great, great group of people to draw from. But I'm sure you've, a lot of the people you've known over your very long career in the service, not a lot of them maybe had those tools, but you feel like what the Cohen Clinic provides is something that any of them could tap into. Absolutely. Um, and like I said, th- there were points where if, you know, if the Cohen Clinic were around in, you know, 95, when I first put off my initial stint in active duty, I probably, you know, I, I could have used them. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I would have, because at the time my pride maybe would have gotten in the way. Like, but I can tell you those next four, four or five years of my life would have been way better. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an opportunity like we talked about before is that that, that veterans didn't have um, and, and now they do. Um, and I really encourage anybody who, who thinks that they, they could use the help because um, we've all been there. So don't let your pride get in the way, right? Yeah, don't let your pride get in the way um, and um, and reach out. If, if you can reach out to, to a buddy um, and you know, it works the other way too. If you see somebody that's struggling, don't try to take it on yourself um, because a- after I've learned so much, you know, especially all that stuff that Dr. Blaine just, you know, talked about, forget it. I mean, you know, these people are professionals um, and, you, you know, I was kidding around about, about getting my knee replaced. You know, you can see that, you know, sometimes it's not, it's not there for you to see that like, Hey, that guy's walking, you know, you know, two inches, you know, lower here than he's there. It, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an invisible, you know, uh, pain that for a lot of us and, um, and, and that could be for your family too. So, uh, just don't overlook it. Don't let your pride get in the way. Um, also if you really think somebody's, you know, I, I would recommend, you know, if, um, the Cohen clinic, absolutely to any of my friends or, um, you know, we're, or some kind of mental health care, obviously, you know, if they're, if they're struggling. I'm going to come back to you, Peter, because I know we're going to lose you here in a couple minutes, Leah, but uh, I want to ask you, why veterans? What what drew you in your life to support veterans, and, and where's that yeah. passion start? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I think, you know, for me, um, it's, I, I'll be honest, I, I didn't start with a goal of serving um, veterans or, or the military community, um, and it's not that I didn't care, it's just kind of my, um, what inspired me towards the work was actually a, a close friend. Um, you know, watching them um, kind of go down a path based on some things that had happened in their life and, um, you know, just seeing all of their potential and then seeing these things that had happened to them and um, seeing where that potential got really robbed in some ways, right? Just by circumstance, right? You know, kind of that, but for the grace of God, right? Like we, we are all um, a, a little bit good and a little bit lucky. Um, and I think, you know, I was really kind of called to that space where, you know, a lot of good people got unlucky, um, and trying to figure out how do we help, right? Like to be super cheesy and therapisty, how do we help people, right? When life got in the way, when things got tough, when they had to go through something that other people didn't have to go through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they had to go through it. And whereas other people had some support, they didn't have that support. 
And so as I was really getting um, kind of up to speed in trauma recovery, I was really fortunate to do some amazing training. You know, I, I was serving folks in North St. Louis and then, you know, in Baltimore and obviously here back in Philly at a point. Um, and what I learned over that time is that actually serving the military community hold me in such a strong way um, for a lot of reasons. So I think first and foremost for me, um, I, I don't know of a community that is more, I mean, literally defined by service, right? So they are a they, right? Because I, I, I serve the military and veteran community, but I, I do not consider myself a part of the community I did not serve. I, I have not been, I wasn't a military kiddo, not military partner. Um, and so I, I see this amazing community of people who give so much during and after their service, right? None, none of the people I work with are done serving. And so I think there is just something so amazing and resilient and that we are giving to everyone when we give back to our veterans and our military family members, right? Like we are giving to them and they have, they have served, they have earned, they deserve everything we've got. And then it's going to pay dividends for everyone around them because they're going to lift up their families, their churches, their businesses, their, you know, anything that they touch. So I think that to me has just been so humbling and so cool to really see the way that we can make an impact in a community by serving folks who have been there for us. Um, and I really, you know, the other piece for me is also, you know, being really passionate about, um, you know, working with trauma survivors, um, but also working with folks who have been, um, you know, just disadvantaged. And I think I'll be really honest, I think disadvantaged um, socially, economically, um, in, and in terms of, you know, a lot of bias that still exists in our culture. And there is no more diverse group of people that I or any of my colleagues have served than our veterans. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that, you know, the fastest, you know, growing contingent of veterans is women. Uh, we know veterans are more likely to be um, trans and gender nonconforming, um, especially since Don't Ask, Don't Tell was rolled back. We actually have actual real data on um, folks who are serving who identify as LGBTQ. Um, we know that folks um, are that folks who have come from disadvantaged uh, socioeconomic backgrounds are very drawn towards the military, often in a lot of cases. And so, being able to actually show up and be there for a community who was trying to turn, you know, a, a tough situation into an amazing thing mm -hmm. um, is also great. And then not actually being able to help when that bias shows up in the military service as well. So I think there are just so many pieces that have for me over time, you know, taken it from something that I, you know, had the opportunity to do some training and got the opportunity to start working with veterans. And I, I don't think that I could kind of go another way at this point. Um, it just really feels like kind of like where, you know, where I want to be and, and being able to embody that mission of, um, of helping to be part of the whole community that's welcoming people home. Um, and helping people to thrive. Um, and I will add one more piece, which is that having been able to serve both in the VA and outside of the VA, um, I think both are amazing. And I'm so glad all of the resources are there. And um, I really love serving veterans, military family members in this more flexible setting, um, mm -hmm. because I think it, it kind of shakes off some of the, um, the challenges and, and the kind of systemic stuff and really just lets you get into the work and help people kind of get moving. Um, towards awesome. what they're really here for. Well, okay, so how does someone come into the clinic? What do they need to bring? Can they just call? We have an appointment number. It's 844-573-3146. 844-573-3146. Mm 
573-3146. Um, that's, that's where you start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is calling our, our uh, we have an intake person uh, team actually. And um, they're very skilled at setting you up, not only with just, just one of our clinicians, but the right clinician based on the, the issues that, that you present. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have a great all around team. Um, and, and then there's a process where, you know, you fill out a questionnaire and, you know, you move on with, with the, whatever clinician you get matched up with. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of pack it all in there. Um, and I would say to your point, um, you know, Sean from before is that um, you, you don't have to worry about if we're the right place. Um, or, or if what, if we treat what you're working with, or I think really, if you, if, if something doesn't feel right, if you think there's something that you'd like some support with, or that you think you're, you know, worried about a loved one, just call. Right. So I think there is, there is no wrong door here. So if we're not it, if for whatever reason, you know, they, you know, you need something really specific and we don't do that we're going to still help to get you there. Mm-hmm. So I think that other piece of, we don't want people to have to be their own you know, physician and WebMD it and figure out what it is just to call us. Um, we'll do that screening. Our team is amazing. Um, and they are equally passionate about helping people get to care wherever that is. So if that's not with us, that's fine too. Yeah. We just want to make sure that folks get what they need. And, and, and really important part that you probably didn't hit it up enough on my fault. Sorry. Um, is that, you know, we are telehealth I and mean, we'll, we'll see people in person, but uh, we cover Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. So we're, so you don't worry if you're in Pittsburgh, you know, you can still call our clinic and you could do whatever the setup is that, that, that you feel the most comfortable. So you don't have to drive all the way to Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania to see us. Um, this is something that we do. And um, over the last few years with COVID, I mean, it's, you know, we, we were doing it beforehand, because of our population, mm-hmm. but it's something we're already skilled at, but now we're experts at. Fantastic. Well, it, I really appreciate both of your time today, uh, telling us more uh, about yourselves, uh, Peter, about your service uh, and all about the clinic. Um, for those of you who have been listening or watching, uh, we will have links uh, to the Stephen Cohen Clinic in the description. And uh, if you, it's the first time you're watching the Scuttlebutt, welcome. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. And if you have any questions or thoughts based off of the discussion today, you can email me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at Veterans Breakfast Club. Dot org uh, or questions for our guests. I'll make sure to pass them on to them as well. Um, thank you both so much. I uh, really appreciate the, the educational lesson and the conversation today. Uh, and I thank you for spending the time with me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Nice meeting you.